Welcome to episode number 27 in the EAE podcast. I'm your host, Laura Rumbly, and we're delighted you've chosen to listen in. We're also very excited that the publication of this episode coincides with the one-year anniversary of the launch of our podcast series. We've covered a lot of ground over the last year and are really looking forward to exploring much more in future episodes. But first, let's zero in on our current topic. Earlier this year, a large study looking at internationalization across a large part of the Middle East and North Africa, or the MENA region, was commissioned by the Union for the Mediterranean and carried out by UNIMED, the Mediterranean Universities Union. The EIE asked the main author of that study to write an essay for our 2021 Conference Conversation Starter Essay Series, which you can find on the EIE blog. The study surfaced a very wide range of issues, challenges, and opportunities that frame the internationalization experiences of the countries situated along the southern Mediterranean. It's far too much to unpack all at once, but to help us get our heads around some of these experiences at a more digestible scale, we turned to a colleague with frontline experience to share her perspectives. Our guest is Hala Demeshkie, who's been the director of the Office of International Programs at the American University of Beirut, or AUB, since 2014. She's responsible for managing, developing, and promoting a wide portfolio of AUB's international activities, programs, and initiatives. The realities of an entire region can never be encapsulated in the experiences of one country or one institution. But one voice can open a window on a wider conversation about regions of the world that we should all be taking the time to learn more about. Wonderful to be speaking with you today, Hala. Thanks so much for taking the time. As an outsider looking into Lebanon, I have to say that the last couple of years have seemed to be quite a turbulent period for the country, politically, socially, economically. Can you talk a little bit about how your own work has been affected and how AUB, the American University of Beirut, has been weathering these developments? Yes, of course. Yeah, there's no question that our work has been profoundly affected on on several levels. There's consequences on the day-to-day of our lives, students, faculty, and staff, right, that began in October 2019 with the uh, so-called revolution that actually pushed us into a state of virtual uh, teaching and learning before the pandemic. So the silver lining was that when the pandemic struck, we were actually ready because we had already been online for a few months. The unrest was such that people couldn't come to campus. And a lot of our own students and faculty and staff were involved in the protests. So um, it was exciting, but it was, you know, it meant that we had to adapt to online learning. And then what was much more dramatic than that was the devaluation of our national currency, which affected the value of our own salaries as faculty and staff. It affected the ability of students to pay tuition. There were layoffs in the summer of 2020. Last summer, there were about 800 staff who were laid off because the university could no longer afford to pay their salaries. In my office, we were six people. We were down to four by last December. And that made a huge difference really to the the burden on those of us who remain, who had to kind of share the, you know, the workload of the two who were left and they would not replace them because the university can't afford to hire new staff. More recently, you must have heard about fuel shortages. Oh, and I I forgot last summer, there was the August 4 explosion, which I don't know how I forgot that. But yes, that was terrible. And then more recently, um, severe fuel shortages, which are affecting people's ability to 
get to work, to get to campus. Um, and if you're a student and you're studying online and you have no electricity, then you have no Wi-Fi. So it's like a double, you know, or triple effect on, on ability to conduct normal business as, no, as usual in a sense, right? So that's been difficult. And a lot of students, like I said, can't pay tuition. There's been a huge brain drain. Uh, faculty and staff are also leaving because, you know, in search of better opportunities. And the only real advantage I would say to this right now is that if you're earning in dollars, so if you're an international student or a Lebanese student whose parents are abroad earning in dollars, then the tuition is much cheaper now. So, Very yeah. interesting knock-on effects, you know, along yeah. those lines. Many layers of challenges and each one very complex in its own right. Yes, many, many layers. And, you know, and at the same time, you're just trying to keep things going. And you unbelievably, you know, we're signing new partnerships. Um, the relationships with our partners are being maintained. There doesn't seem to have been a dip in interest in partnering with us, which I'm very happy to say. And also there's been a spike in the number of students wanting to study abroad next spring because, you know, obviously this fall, it was still compromised a bit because of COVID, but there's been an increase in the students who would like to study abroad next spring. I think because they realize that this is an opportunity for them as a bridge to possibly to getting their graduate program abroad, like to studying, to doing their graduate studies abroad. But also I think many of us these students wanted to do their full degree abroad, but then their parents couldn't afford to send them anymore. So this is the next best thing. All right. I, th- I hope we'll have a chance to unpack a couple of those yeah. different issues that you've raised. Mm-hmm. So with the first one, to go back a couple of moments in your uh, comments, having to do with the pivot to online teaching and learning. Over the past year, all of us around the world have been uh, working on that. And, and it sounds like you got a jump on that on, uh, ahead of many of us. Can you talk a little bit about how that transition has gone at AUB and particularly the feedback that you've gotten from students? Um, We're really interested in hearing how that side of things seems to be working. Well, we adapted pretty well and pretty quickly, I must say, uh, back in October 2019. We had a very good IT, you know, IT support, very good IT support. We had, I mean, it was, it was a challenge. I'm not saying it was easy, but people adapted quite quickly. For our office, everything was already on a cloud. And online. So we were in a really good position to handle the remote working, but students are not happy. Students don't like it. We had a lot of complaints, or I mean, you know, they don't come to us directly because with the Office of International Programs, we're not teaching them. But I know through my colleagues and faculty members that students were really not happy to be studying remotely. They didn't like the virtual space. A lot of the professors didn't like the virtual space. You know, AUB is quite small. It's like eight or 9,000 students. And the campus is one of the most beautiful campuses in the world. The whole point of AUB, not the whole point, but a large point of it is the community and the campus itself and the campus life. And I think especially international students, but also Lebanese students, but especially international students really felt like they'd been hard done by, by this situation. And for many who ended up having to go home to places that you know, um, we're not are not necessarily better off. You know, uh, some countries in North Africa, some countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, Afghanistan. Now, you know, we're trying to bring students back from there. You know, they felt shortchanged by this. I think on many on many levels. 
to that point about the international student experience, traditionally, Lebanon has been a very attractive destination for international students from the rest of the MENA region, Middle East and North Africa, and from either even further away. Given the ongoing challenges at the moment, how are you preparing to receive your newest cohort of international students in the fall? And how do you see this ability to attract students potentially evolving in the next several years? Well, for the fall, we've done a lot to try to prepare students, but because of the the recent developments in fuel shortages and other kinds of shortages, even medicine and things like that, it's been quite challenging. So, for example, we've um, vaccinated all the community members who are currently in, in Lebanon. Okay, so everyone who's faculty staff or students has been fully vaccinated at this point. All the new students who are coming in, if they haven't been vaccinated, they will be as soon as they arrive. Once people are vaccinated in the community, they will be allowed to access campus. And the idea is that even if the first month is likely to be online, anyone who's been vaccinated will be able to access campus because it's that campus experience. Even if your courses, if you can come to campus and hang out with your friends and plug into the Wi-Fi, which is much better than it is off campus, and access the library, that will take the edge off a little bit from being online. So I think the first months will probably be online, but they want students to come to campus. They want the campus to be accessible. And we're doing our best as an international office to communicate our crisis management plans and to be as candid as possible so that we're not also pushing people to come to a situation that is actually unpredictable. Let's face it, we cannot guarantee uh, what will happen tomorrow. Some people today are saying that literally tomorrow a government will be formed. And if that happens, everything will go back to normal-ish, you know, to livable. But it might not happen. And if it doesn't happen, we're going to have more of the same that we've been experiencing the last month. And that's not going to be easy. And then maybe it is better for some students just to stay where they are until the situation improves. But we don't have a crystal ball, so we don't know. That's all we can do, right? <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Does that answer your question? It does, actually. Is there anything that you wanted to say about the longer term? I think it's very difficult to tell because we can't predict the political uh, situation. But assuming that we can go back to some kind of normal, then yes, I do think there are a lot of opportunities to be had even under the circumstances of a country that has experienced, you know, massive socioeconomic trauma, in a sense, mm. because there are opportunities to become civically engaged. There's a lot of AUB has an amazing uh, community service and civic engagement center that works a lot with underserved communities and international students can get into that. There's a huge refugee population in Lebanon. There's so much to be done to help them and to support them. And again, like I was saying earlier, it's more it's a more affordable education for many. You know, it's a AUB is an American university. All the courses are taught in English. And if it's affordable, it could be very interesting for students from the region and from further east as well to come here to get an American education, you know, uh, that's sort of grounded in the liberal arts and, and and so on. So this is also something that I think will remain a pull and an opportunity for AUB. Interesting. 
It's my understanding that traditionally, Lebanese society has enjoyed higher levels of gender equality than other MENA countries. Do you see this reflected in student mobility numbers and dynamics in Lebanon? And recognizing that there's a great deal of diversity across the MENA region, might there be some common approaches that universities in the region could do to encourage greater participation among female students in mobility programs? Yes, well, that's a really good point. And actually, yes, and, um, you know, AUB is 50-50 male, female. And uh, looking at the figures for the last six years, we've actually had more, slightly more female students going abroad than male students, slightly more. But it's about the same. I can't really speak to other countries in the MENA region, or other institutions, but if, and, and I can't, Let's say that I, I don't know for a fact, but I would guess that one of the main reasons that female students participate less than males in other countries in the region is because their parents are, you know, it's a more, they're more conservative societies. The parents are reluctant to let their daughters go. And I think if I had to come up with an idea, I think one way to approach this would be for universities to develop more faculty-led outbound programs. Because then there's a guardian, there's someone with the students and the parents would feel more comfortable with that. So that could be one way to tackle this. And another way would be to educate the parents, you know, do run info sessions for the parents and explain to them, you know, how this works and what the advantages are and what the benefits are. But I think the first one would be more successful somehow with, um, you know, it getting through and it changing behavior. You've already mentioned the question or the, the matter of refugees within Lebanon. And certainly we know that in the last decade of instability in Syria, the displacement of millions of individuals has had a direct impact on Lebanon. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how AUB and the Lebanese higher education system more broadly has responded to that particular crisis? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. You know, we have established through our office a sort of liaison with the Ministry of Education and Higher Education because recently they started coming up with all these rules for students to get their equivalencies and the equivalencies are tied to the residence permits. But it has been a real struggle, I have to say, because the ministry is, you know, that their processes are outdated. They've had an interim director general because the former minister sort of, I think, was involved in some scandal. And so everything is slow and sluggish and old, and they haven't really figured out a way to to make this a smoother process for students coming from war-torn countries, mostly Syria, but we also have students from Libya and Yemen and Afghanistan. And the student will tell you, well, you know, I don't have records because my school was blown up. And then the ministry's like, well, you have to get them anyway. And, you know, and so AUB <laughs> has tried very hard to manage a relationship with the Ministry of Education to try to advocate for these students and to kind of somehow you know, have them make exceptions in, in difficult cases and so on. But it's not been easy. And I wouldn't say it's been very strategic either, where the, where the government is working with the higher education institutions to find solutions that work for everybody. It's, it's a bit of a, I mean, there is some give and take, but it's not easy. Sounds like more work to be done in that area, yes. potentially, yes. to improve those dynamics. Mm -hmm. For the EA online community exchange event running in September, from September 28th to October 1st, we commissioned a series of conversation starter essays. And one of these that we published on the EA blog focuses on internationalization across the MENA region specifically. And the author of that essay argued 
or argues that Europe is and really needs to be a key partner for the MENA region and that university networks in particular are really vital to the future of internationalization in the region. You mentioned that at the beginning of our conversation, and I wonder if you could say just a little bit more about how you see that role for international partnerships in terms of longer-term developments for AUB and maybe for Lebanon and, and the region more broadly. Yes, I, I read that essay and I thought it was great. And I completely agree with, with everything the author said. In fact, our partnerships have really constituted what I would say is a lifeline really for us as professionals, but also for our students who have gained access to a world outside Lebanon uh, through virtual exchange programs, actual, you know, in-person exchange programs. And this is particularly true in the case of European partners because of the Erasmus Plus ICM uh, funding, which has been invaluable, it's, especially now students are not able to pay out of pocket, even the ticket or the living expenses. So we've seen a spike in applicants to the Erasmus Plus program, which before, you know, many students could afford just to go on a regular exchange. They didn't need the funding, but now they really need that funding or else they just can't go. And so it is really invaluable given the financial situation. And the international partnerships have been, especially under these circumstances, like I was saying earlier, it's true. They've been, they haven't slowed down. And it's kind of like a lifeline. I mean, you feel like it transcends the day-to-day and the sort of the difficulty of the day-to-day situation so that you're able to work with people who sort of buoy you in a sense, because they're not struggling with that day-to-day. And through the partnership, there's access and opportunities for students, faculty, and staff to experience a different education, but also research opportunities for faculty and teaching opportunities as well through Erasmus+. Plus. So I do think this is absolute, absolutely critical, and it's more valuable when you're struggling, that much more valuable when you're struggling. Yeah. Hala, thank you so much for taking the time to think about the, the dynamics of your work at the moment and some of these perspectives on what the future may hold. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Hala Demishkier speaking with us from her home in Beirut, where she serves as the director of the Office of International Programs at the American University of Beirut. The conversation starter essay focused on internationalization in the MENA region that we mentioned at the end of our conversation can be found on the EAE blog. Our session notes provide that link, and EAE members can also easily access an article written by Hala herself in the spring 2021 issue of EAE's member magazine, Forum. The EAE is your go-to source for all manner of information and resources on international education in Europe. Please visit our website, www.eae.org, to find the latest on our 2021 training offerings, publications, and more. The next EAE podcast is coming your way in just one week's time. We hope you'll tune in again, share and like us on social media, and subscribe to our series on your preferred podcast platform. For now, all good wishes to you from the EAE.